0: Welcome to Video Game Bullshit.
1: Jeffrey Wittenhagen, I'm an author of multiple gaming books, including collector's guides for both the Nintendo and Super Nintendo. I'm a huge fan of action RPGs like The Legend of Zelda, and obscure systems like the Neo Geo and TurboGrafx-16. And we've got hey,
2: hey, I'm big into uh, no-death runs, high-score runs, uh, collector of all things, vintage and retro, uh, pretty much anything video game related. Also collect figures, vinyl, VHS, tap handles, old beer signs, and old beer steins.
1: Please call our number, leave
2: a voicemail, or a text message at
1: 262-264-VGBS.
2: So, we're back, baby. I guess we're going to go the 3D NES route today.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so that was a pretty crazy thing with the um, the 3D NES because everything now seems to be going toward 3D and madness and like I came across the thread of it on Nintendo Age and it's an older thread but I never saw it until like recently and when I saw it it was talking about using it for VR where essentially it gives you two pictures you put this little VR set that you can get offline for like Twenty or thirty dollars, and you put your phone in it, your smartphone, and it can play Nintendo games in 3D, like virtual reality, which is madness. But the the key is though is for everybody who doesn't want to do that and has something strapped to your face, you can actually still play the games in 3D, kind of like 3D dot game heroes style for, of Legend of Zelda, because like that game on the PS3 is like everything is like a Still eight bit, but it's blocky and in three D. Yeah, it's all
2: made of the blocks.
1: Yeah, and like, and I asked the guy, I'm like, is it automatic or manual? And he's like, well, it's automatic. So basically, you can load any ROM into the emulator because it's essentially a PC emulator, and you can load any game into it. It automatically converts it to three D. But the, the the key is though, where Kyle, you've become like obsessed with it is that you can tweak, like, everything, which is where I want you to go into, like, the details on your fucking thought process because I couldn't even figure that shit out. Like, I was just playing it, and I'm like, oh, cool. Um, it works pretty decently, and you can move it around with the mouse and, you know, to, to move around the whole picture on an axis. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's pretty cool, cool, but, like, I couldn't it, – it, do, it doesn't look perfect. So I was like, eh, it's, it's a cool little gimmick. They'll fix it eventually. But, like, you figured something out, which is awesome.
2: From what I was saying, I think it was one of the last episode or two episodes ago how the NES is kind of timeless because it has that pixel. So it's kind of like you can build it out of, like, Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think that look is timeless. Absolutely. It's a special era, the pixel era. And, I mean, you can do so much with it, you know. It, even just, like, in the physical realm, like with the, uh, Perlers. I mean, that's the whole magic of that. It accesses all these other realms and that's where the 3d thing comes in. Mm -hmm. The program's taking all those pixels and turning them into like voxel type, uh, 3d boxes. And then you can adjust the length of the boxes and certain things like that. But before getting into all the crazy, like minutia of everything, when you just load up the games, Mm -hmm. For the most part, you need, like, a lot of tweaking. And I think even just the emulator itself uses, like, a Nesticle-based emulator. Because all the games that were messed up when I used to play Nesticle, (laughs) that would never work right. Uh, Like, Punch-Out, when you load that one up, it's got all these, like, characters everywhere. Like, Mike Tyson's face is all, like, whacked out. It looks the same exact way in Nesticle. Yeah. So I was thinking, hmm... So that, that game's pretty much screwed if you want, like, a perfect remastered 3D version. You almost would have to say, okay, well, we can't do the title screen, but maybe we'll have to settle for this or that. So there's, like, a settling aspect to some of those. A lot of games won't load. Uh, Galaxian doesn't load. Uh, Bomberman doesn't go past the title screen. That's weird. Yeah. There are a few other ones that I tried that didn't load. I, I need to try them on SQL, too, so it almost looks like he used that for the emulation.
1: It, it makes sense that he would use something that's existing to use as the backbone for his engine. And the, the one thing that I was giving you for, like, a little bit of Nugget that we were talking about earlier was that maybe check some of those websites where you can download the entire ROM pack of every single RIP. Of all the versions, because one of those ROMs might actually work with it.
2: Yeah, just try them. and
1: Maybe not, but...
2: What I realized, too, like, so 3D is interesting because, first off, so anything that's 3D, you have to think of it like a lot of games are pseudo-3D in the NES already, like Zelda, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, the trees are, like, sitting on their side. But it's made in a 3D way, so when you play normal NES, the trees look like they're laying down, so that to make them look 3D, you know. So if you pull those up and make those 3D, it actually just looks like the tree is laying on its side and it's like above the ground. So it's hard to do Zelda type Uh games. What my rule is, if it's pseudo 3D, leave it as is. This brings in, like, the meters. So you can assign each sprite. You can click on the sprites. And you can... Once you click on a sprite, hopefully, when you load up the game, it's pre-determined in a decent way. I'll, what I've noticed is the logic doesn't know what to do with a lot of the the graphics. And uh, it'll display it in, like, a wonky way. And I think as the versions progress it'll get smarter and smarter as far as what it needs to do so that you won't have to curtail it as much that's the one of the biggest issues basically yeah. you can click on a sprite and then you can assign that sprite a front or back okay so let's say double dragon first double dragon you're you're walking in the first level back would be like the skyscrapers
1: the background yeah
2: yeah, and then the front would be, like, the character, Billy, the barrels, you know, like, the bad guys. So that would be the front. So you assign them, and then you can mm-hmm. make the width of each of the sprites thicker or skinnier. And that's where the 3D comes in. So it's basically taking the pixel and just widening it. So that's what makes it 3D. Interesting.
1: Interesting.
2: In saying that, it's really good for games that are, like, side-scrollers or overhead, either shooters or, like... I would say, like, Galaga's amazing with it. Galaga's, like, perfect.
1: Like, the uh, creator of the um, the program uploaded a a racing game, and that racing game looked awesome because he actually literally did it in, like, first-person.
2: Yeah, and that's, like, Spy Hunter 2.
1: That was pretty badass.
2: The only problem with Spy Hunter, it looks like the trees, again, they're, like, on their side because they're pseudo 3D already. So the way that I would fix that yeah. is by giving them no texture. It's kind of like the boss and Contra, the end of the first level, how the the base is, mm-hmm. like, kind of pseudo 3D. The bottom part that's sticking out that you have to shoot to destroy it. So just leave that 3D al- It's already in 3D. What's funny is when you try to make that 3D, it actually makes it look flat. Weird. Which, I guess if you think about it, it makes sense because you try to make something flat 3D, you try to make something 3D flat, it kind of like flips on itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. In a weird way.
2: Like, if you try to make something 3D that's already 3D, it's going to look flat. If you try to make something flat that's already flat, it's going to look 3D. I don't don't know. (laughs) But the problem that I've encountered, the biggest problem, is when you select the sprites. Sometimes a sprite is unselectable. So you'll select it, and it'll select for like a millisecond and then it'll deselect automatically. Weird. But I almost don't even know if that's within the... um, They almost seem like glitch fixes, little, like, band-aids that were used to, like... I don't know. Working with this program, it's almost like a view into the actual programming, because, like, for Bloomfight, you click on this one platform, and then two other stars that are in the background are connected to that platform. So there's your first problem. Anything you do to that platform, the stars are automatically connected so they share that same characteristic. Yeah. So if you bring the platform out, the stars are going to bring out. Okay. Now you have two stars that are look weird compared to all the other stars. So it's kind of like a puzzle and like how can I make it 3D and yet work within the confines of the limitations. And there's a lot of limitations. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, like with Hattress, if you stack all the hats, it'll give you different texture prerequisites. What I prefer is the way that the sprite looks as it did in the NES version. You know what I mean? Like original. Just make that 3D. Mm-hmm. But there's also other parameters you can set it at. You can make it completely like a cylinder. So that Mario looks like actually 3D, like he's a round little cylinder, Mario instead of the flat sprite that's 3D, like a Lego uh, model.
1: yeah, I think I think you made the pipe cylinders or something in the original Mario Brothers arcade game.
2: Yeah, that's where that comes in because you can make vertical cylinders and horizontal cylinders. Now the thing with hattress, there's like top hats, so you, so you would think, oh cool, I can make a vertical cylinder. And make the top hat 3D, right? But the problem with that is now the top hat doesn't have a top. Because it's just taking that sprite and turning it into a cylinder.
1: Ah. Uh,
2: it doesn't know that there's supposed to be a cap on the top of a top hat. You know what I mean? So that's a limitation to where it's just better to leave it flat. Because the top hat's not supposed to have an open hole on the top. You know? Yeah. And so it turns it into a pipe that's where my rule of just take the original sprite and just don't try to get too fancy with it and just make the original sprite 3d i think that's what people want anyway you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i just want the original game i just want a different like view on it so that was what i thought when i saw it like when you saw this the program did you think um you know that's kind of what i've always wanted or kind of it's going in the right direction it's gonna get somewhere i mean
1: it it literally reminded me of 3D dot game heroes how it took everything from 2D to 3D at the very beginning of that game because so that's essentially Legend of Zelda in 3D like they show it in this emulator and it's really cool um, and that's exactly what I thought um, now I'm hoping that when they change revisions that all the work you're doing stays intact but um, if it doesn't you know we can always just use the older version. Because uh, the cool thing that we're doing is that you can actually save all the 3D work that you're doing to a file. And so what we're doing is, is like, you're taking a screenshot of each game you're doing, a couple screenshots, actually, and the file, and we're actually putting those available on hagensalley.com, VGBSpodcast.com, and people can go on there and actually get the files that you're perfecting each pixel on. So it's almost like a ROM hack, a 3D ROM hack is what you're doing. Yeah, pretty much. Which is awesome. So so we're able to share the wealth and I don't think people really realize like it's it's they don't realize what it is.
2: And almost and also like how much work goes into the each one, like making it perfect. It's kind of so funny like creating like order out of chaos is what it is cuz a lot mm-hmm. of those games load up and it looks like fucking garbage.
1: Oh, it does, like the classic Zelda, where the where the mountains like bring square blocks instead of like actually cutting out the 3D to the mountain, it's just like a full block.
2: You have to, yeah, you have to mess with the stuff like that. Even like where it said like the Legend of Zelda, the Legend of you couldn't read it because it was back, it was set back automatically, where the other part of the logo wasn't. See, that's okay. This is a perfect example. And then let's say. The back of the logo, it won't let you select it, which happens. That happened to me with Pac-Man. So two parts of the logo, when you load it up, they're not correctly, like, aligned, because the program just doesn't understand, and you can't select one of them. So I can never align the title screen, like, correctly. So it's that, that title screen's fucked, like, forever, basically. Cause I, just because I can't select the sprite. Weird. Yeah. So, I'll select it, it'll deselect automatically, like, it won't let me. So, I can't align that width with the other width. So, those two sprites are actually two separate sprites, of the, at least two, <laughs> if not more. So, that's what I'm realizing, too. Like, I used to think one sprite was one sprite, but, like... Oh, no. With, with the balloon fight thing, it's, like, it's almost like they create little fixes. It, it reminds me kind of of Doom CAD when you make, like, a Doom level. Mm-hmm. And, um... But that's almost too intricate for me. You can just go, you can spend months making a Doom level where if you spend about an hour on one of these games, you'll you'll get pretty far. You'll get some, you know, advancement as far as, you know, cleaning it up, making it look nice. But uh, there's a lot of roadblocks and there's a lot of issues. And it's a, it's a struggle, I mean, but it's like a little test for me. It's cool to see if I can make it work because I've made some of the Lego like eight-bit guys. I, I've just always seen the eight-bit in 3D mm-hmm.
1: before.
2: I've, I've always wanted something like
1: that. You know, I thought it was cool. So it's like a it's like a little creativity project, and it's awesome and it's something new. Um, I hope that they figure out how to make it work. Like not necessarily, it'll never work on like a Nintendo but make that emulator work, like, on a Raspberry Pi. Because if they can make that work on a Raspberry Pi, you could plug it into a TV and play it with a controller on a TV. Because a a Raspberry Pi is essentially an Xbox, like, the coin-ops thing.
2: Yeah, because he's made, um, you know, he has one for, like, Linux and uh, Mac OS or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he should definitely um, make one for, like, Raspberry Pi OS.
1: I mean, and and he might already have it or something. I don't know. Because I wanted it for coin-op so that we can just play it on my old TV. But (laughs) that's just me being an old fuddy-duddy.
2: What's interesting, like, with Tetris, when you load it up, all right, so the title screen has, like, the background's a bunch of squares, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It's, like, all the Tetris blocks, but they're, like, placed It's the background. It's, like, a wallpaper. So the problem, all of those when it preloaded they were all cylinders
1: oh my god
2: yeah the prerequisite thing loads it up all the cylinders and there's like three sprites that you can't select <laughs> so that means those sprites will forever be cylinders because you can't change the property to make them square like the tetris pieces so i figured you know That's fine. I'll just select all the ones that I can. No one will probably even notice. Maybe a little bit, but it's not going to be a glaring issue. I'll try my best. So it becomes that. You almost have to settle.
1: You have to compensate.
2: Yeah, like in in Miss Pac-Man, when you get a game over, the G and the R in game over are like underneath the playboard because I raised it up. Interesting. But if I raise up game over, then it screws up the the font that's on the title screen, because all those those Gs are connected with the other Gs, and every R is connected with every other R. So if you change one R, it changes the other R's elsewhere in the game. (laughs) See, that's the nightmare.
1: Jeez.
2: It's like when you push in a balloon, and it comes out the other side somewhere else. So it's like when you try to fix one issue, it creates another issue elsewhere. I think that's where the glitches (laughs) come in, like... One glitch creates another glitch, then you fix that glitch, and then there's another glitch is created somewhere else because now the program's trying to read what you just changed, and it doesn't know because, <laughs> because you flipped it. So then it creates the next glitch. Yeah, it's kind of like a nightmare. Like I think that's why some games will always have glitches because you can only follow that road so long. And I used to do that with like Doom levels. You would get to a Doom wall, and you could see through the wall yeah, and you're like, "Fuck, I can't have that." So then you would change that a little bit, but in changing that a little bit, now another part of the level you can see through the wall. And it's like an insanity, like. <laughs> so now I change this thing, and then it just opens up another like black hole somewhere else.
1: It sounds exactly <laughs> like uh, when Joe Granado and uh, Kahan Kevin Hanley were doing their panel um, on NES game programming. Like you change one little thing and. It's a fucking mad issue with errors, and one thing compounds on everything else and fucks it all up. Yeah, it's like the
2: definition of insanity. Like That's why you should just download the stuff from our site, because so much work. Like, the Miss Pac-Man score, the bottom scores it kept wanting to put in 3D, which made it look really weird. So that means, like, that's 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. You have to slot all those as non-3D. so you Okay, so you can't access all all the sprites at one time, right? That's what this program needs, is like a palette. Yeah. But now I understand with Hattress you can never have that, because there's like a thousand sprites.
1: Because mm-hmm.
2: every single hat combination, every column, you could have like ten hats on top of each other. There's five different hats, so every single combination within that, you could have like, you know five wizard hats, two baseball hats, one top hat, and then one wizard hat, and then one top hat, and then two. You know, like, it's like a million combinations. Yeah. So you could never have a palette sheet that would have all that
1: on it. Well, I mean, because, yeah, how it worked in Nesticle back in the day was it would show whatever table is currently selected. So So, like, if the top hat's selected... Whatever table that sprite falls in that you're looking at would pop up, but then if you went to the next hat and it was in a different table, that table would pop up, and then you can only see one table at a time. And it was that it was crazy.
2: That would at least be better because at least you you don't have to play through the game. So that's the thing. So I'm playing through Miss Pac-Man and trying to hit every number so I can like manually set that number not to look weird with the 3D effect. I just want it to have a flat effect. Yeah. I just want it to show the number. I don't want it to be all like weird and showing it in three different places. I want it to show in one place. So let's just say you can't select one of the numbers. That happens. Now, let's say you can't select three, because it just won't let you select it. Mm-hmm. Now you, you might as well stick with what you have, because... You can't have one be wrong and the rest be right. <laughs> so you might as
1: well <laughs> <laughs> It's like
2: it's like madness in a way. I could see where people get real burned out on it. It's real cool editing, but then eventually you understand like the rabbit hole just the programming rabbit hole is like these people spent years, you know, learning how to program and then months actually doing these games. So, I mean, that's months. That's a long yeah. time. I mean, I'm sitting there for, like, an hour. Months? <laughs> you know, that's, like, days and days and days. So, eventually, it's like what Leonardo da Vinci said, you know, all art is abandoned at some point. It's never finished. Yep. So, you just have to be like, you know what? This is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good for the OCD. It's good therapy because you have to just throw, throw in the cards at some point. Here's our interview with Dave Brooks, former employee of Nintendo of America.
1: So what, do you have any cool stories or crazy games you worked on or anything insane that happened while you were, you were working with Nintendo?
0: As far as my Nintendo history went, I was uh, going to school at the University of Washington and uh, had an original NES did a lot of video game playing in the basement there and uh got stuck in zelda right okay couldn't find the uh, fifth dungeon oh i hope that's happened to other people too but uh so i was looking through the book and i got to the back and there was this number to call right Mm-hmm. and uh, said gameplay counselors yes like well okay i guess i'll give this a shot so i called up and the person who was there helped me find the fifth dungeon. How did I know I had to go through the wall? What is it, three times? I think. But anyway, that was very helpful, and I started calling them a lot whenever I got stuck. Then uh, I didn't really think too much about it, but I saw a ad in the paper a couple of weeks later that said, "Play video games, make money." I said, "Well, okay, that sounds like a pretty cool deal." So I responded to that, went over, had an interview. And uh, got the job. I guess I was having a really good week and got lucky, and started as a gameplay counselor, which was really fun. So uh, it did that for a couple of years, and uh, you know, basically talking on the phone about video games all day. Pretty cool gig. And I then became a gameplay lead. So I was I had a team of people that I would help out, make sure that they were given good service and whatnot. Uh, after that, though, a position opened up in R&D for a product analyst. I had no idea what a product analyst was, but R&D sounded pretty cool, so I, I interviewed for that, got that gig, which was neat, and in that position I actually got to get into game testing and game development, which was really fun. Uh, one of the things that I started to do then is, and we didn't have a name for it then it's now called localization. But at that point we called it, uh, dejanglish Uh, we would take the bad Japanese English and try to make it so that it would work for the American market. (laughs) Nice. So I, uh, did a lot of that. So I was involved in, uh, helping get some games off the ground. Well, I shouldn't say off the ground. Nintendo of Japan was the area. NCL was uh, making the games, but we would get them and make little tweaks so that they would work a little better for the U.S. market. Um, A really, really good example of that is Final Fantasy. At the time that it came out... Uh, see, they they brought over this game, and we had looked at Dragon Warrior and some of the other stuff like that. And uh, it was only Japanese, so I couldn't play it. But I was really intrigued with what was going on. I had messed around with Ultima on computers and things like that. But when Final Fantasy came over, they said, "Okay, we want to release this." And uh, of course, it was a, a Square Enix title, but uh, Nintendo was going to be involved in releasing it. And we noticed that. Uh, The American market as a whole was not ready for RPGs at that time simply because they hadn't been exposed to them very much. So um, with Final Fantasy, we got together and said, okay, we, we sort of need to teach people how to play this. And if you remember Final Fantasy on the NES... Had a fairly thick instruction book for the time, yeah, and it it's huge. basically walked you through step by step everything that you needed to do to get through. I don't even know what the goal was, but we got you, I think, up maybe to the first boss or something like that. But it was a, um, it was just something that we put together to help the market learn how to play that kind of game, and we ran some focus groups and went through a couple different revisions of that manual, but I think it worked out pretty good, uh, because obviously that type of game caught on, and we saw future games that were similar to it do very well. And it was kind of interesting that because we knew that Final Fantasy was doing very well in the Japanese market. Uh So uh, I kept an eye on all of the Japanese magazines and I would see this popping up. And, you know, our whole team saw that. So we were very interested in it. Our Japanese gameplay counterparts were telling us that this was great also. But the marketing department was looking at it and going, we don't think this is going to work for the market because nobody knows how to play this. So that's why we kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and uh, I'm really glad that we did.
2: Nintendo Power had the strategy guide, too, so that was another added bonus. If you subscribe then you could have the whole walkthrough with the guide. I think the manual had up to Garland as the first boss. It pretty much showed you how everything worked, and I definitely had it, so it definitely worked for me. <laughs> I think that was the biggest manual up to this point.
0: And I know that was also the time that Nintendo started to do focus group testing on games stateside, uh, which was kind of interesting. Next to Nintendo of America, we had a uh, basically a little building that would have, you know, we had the the one-way mirrors and the cameras and stuff, and we would bring in people from the surrounding area and uh, have them play through the game and you know, we'd watch where they would get frustrated, what what was working, what wasn't working, and we'd actually take that and bring it back to the developers and uh, try to make changes.
2: So were they just off the street, or were they just random people, or did they people who applied to play games, or was it a mix of everything, or?
0: You know, I wasn't involved with recruiting on that, but I believe we had uh, an ad that said, if you want to help us make great video games, uh, contact us. So we did sort of interview people, and obviously some people are cut out for that, some aren't. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we had some, uh, they were mostly uh, younger kids, but we only kept the sharp ones who really (laughs) got it and were able to talk to us about what was going on in the games. Ah yeah i do have to say that the magic of nintendo at the time was all about ncl i mean it was the the good stuff was coming out of japan at that time we were just kind of polishing the games for the american market so it's it's not like we were super deep into coding or or making art or anything like that but we would tweak things that maybe weren't appropriate for the market or that the market wouldn't understand. Uh, but we also could have a little bit of uh, influence if there was something that we felt uh, could be changed to make something a little more fun. Uh, so still, the magic all came from Japan, but we were able to put a you know a nice polish on it to make it better for our market. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind? So how about uh, Snake Rattle and Roll?
2: That's a rare game. Battletoads Company. Yeah.
0: Yep. So there was a point there where uh, Nintendo obviously was uh, working very closely with, with Rare. And that was one of the games that was f- very, very frustrating at times because you have that 3D, uh, <laughs> pseudo sort of 3D. Exactly. Uh, where it's kind of like when you're playing Zaxxon, sometimes you can't figure out where you really are yeah there was a lot of that going on with that game um so we uh worked with rare and i remember that game having just some areas that were impossible uh, but we actually got working back and forth we ended up getting it playable so that was probably the weirdest title that i worked on
2: so you made it playable for people
0: and you know i also have to add that i am not an amazing game player um uh, there were several people on my team that were, and we would throw games at them to see you know, if they were beatable and how difficult they were and how long it would take to get through it. Uh, I was never an amazing game player. I was okay, but uh, I was able to kind of hone in on the play control aspects, which is really important. And I think overall, uh, your mileage may vary, but for me, that's where Nintendo really hit it. Uh, the play control is where... For me, the Nintendo games were better than what was out in the market there.
2: Oh, God, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and it's just one of those things that while you're playing, if the play control is excellent, you don't even know that. Uh, Whereas if it's bad, you definitely
2: realize it. Yeah, it's just intuitive. It's a part of you.
0: My desk was really cool um, because I had one of every system that we could get our hands on. So it was everything from you know Sega Master System to the uh, the the Philips system. We had the 3DO there. Um, heck, I even had a Sun workstation that we. Uh, there were like only two games for it, but it was pretty cool. It was the uh, the early incarnations of the Silicon Graphics engine that showed up in the. Uh, Uh, Nintendo 64, but um, we had one of everything out there. And um, so anything that was a prototype or anything would come through and we'd get a chance to play with it. And this one's really funny because this was what, two, three decades ago, two, four, I don't know. It's a long time ago, right? And in my brain, I'm remembering this square rectangle beige box that, had a disk drive in it, or had a CD-ROM drive, and was a Nintendo machine. And I remember that it was a hybrid of Nintendo and Sony. And over the years, I've been telling people about this, and everybody looks at me weird because, you know, no, that never happened. That never occurred. So when it surfaced earlier this year, I was so happy that I could actually point to that and say, look, it's a real thing.
2: (laughs) Yes, we were there too.
0: (laughs) yeah so i saw it and it was like yep that's what it looked like now my experience with it at nintendo uh i honestly don't even remember if it booted up i'm sure it probably did or had power to it um all i remember is talking about it and then a couple weeks later uh hearing that we didn't decide to go with that and you know i was off to something else of course then Sony came out with a PlayStation and uh, went on a fairly successful run. But uh, I remember seeing that box, and uh, I wish I could tell you what it did at the time.
2: I believe the cartridge worked, but the CD only went to the menu. So,
0: And I hope somebody that was involved with it comes in at some point and and can help with that because I'm sure it was great, but quite honestly, that far ago, all I remember is what the box looked like and that it was beige, which you saw it was, <laughs> and uh, that I think maybe it powered up. I wish I could tell you more. I only ever saw one. I'm sure that there were other ones in R&D. I only ever saw that one though, and it disappeared out of my area uh, to be gone forever. I, I wish I had a better story, but That's it.
2: It's a piece of the puzzle. So, what's the story behind naming the Koopa kids and the Reznor boss?
0: Well, this was many, many decades ago, right? So, uh, when Kotaku came out with that, uh, with the interview that they did with me, i uh, was reminded of I, actually a gentleman by the name of jack mclean came out of the woodwork well we're friends on facebook but he came up and reminded me that he was on the team that helped name those as well so it was a team effort definitely not all me but uh, we were all music fans and uh it's pretty obvious with the with the names that are going on in there yeah <laughs> um, so they were all named after music people except for larry koopa we named him Larry just because he looked like a Larry.
2: <laughs> Good old Larry. It's like Clyde and Pac-Man. you got to have an odd man out.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's been speculation that it was after Larry Mullen Jr. from YouTube, but uh, that's not true at all. Yeah, but the one that I'm the most proud of is definitely the Reznor. Um, huge Nine Inch Nails fan at the time. And, uh,
2: yeah, that's great, Trent.
0: I, I saw the the rhino dude and kind of thought he had a big nose like Trent does, and uh, Reznor just seemed like it fit.
2: That's hilarious. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my my, I think my, and and that was part of the localization is we would look at the Japanese names for the characters, and uh, possibly come up with something different if if it needed to be different. I think my favorite name of a character other than Blarg, I mean, that's pretty cool <laughs> is, um, you know, you had those big, uh, rectangle things with the spikes on them that would come down the whomps. Oh, I think my favorite yeah. named character were the little version. The The thwimps.
2: The That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was funny. So, and creative.
0: And of course, boo deadly. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, I can tell you that there were quite a few Game Boy titles. Hmm, Cool. Like, uh, I remember playing Tetris with my boss's boss linked up between two Game Boys before it was out, and we would seriously just go and play for, I don't know, three, four, five hours after work. Uh, So I think we knew that that was definitely going to be a hit. Yeah, it's one of the best of all time. It's like a staple. Yeah, Super Mario Land and Super Mario Land 2, uh, probably two of my favorite titles on Game Boy. Just amazing gameplay.
2: Yeah, the second one, like, wow, Wario.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love (laughs) him. And then, of course, there was that link up where, you'll remember what it's called, I Don't, the thing where you could hook up four Game Boys together.
2: Oh, shit.
0: Yeah, but it, it all went into this box.
2: Huh. I don't think I've seen that.
0: Looks like a USB hub, which I think probably didn't happen too much in the real world. But uh, hey, in R and D, we sure did it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So rare for four people to have it. It's a lot of batteries. Monopoly would be good.
0: Bomberman sounds to me to have the best four player experience.
2: That was a really fun one.
0: And that was the ultimate screw your buddy game.
2: Yeah, it was. (laughs) So how did the how did Japan go? And you met Miyamoto and everything.
0: Yeah, I did go over and work in Japan for a while, um, and I I was lucky enough to work with uh, Miyamoto-san. It was just amazing working with that team. Now, we worked with them a lot via fax at that time, so we would send faxes back and forth every day about things that needed to change. Or uh, In my case, I worked on the manuals, so I would tweak words in the manuals, or we'd find a bug in level five or whatever and communicate it to them. Um, but when I was over there, it was really funny because, uh, a couple of months before I knew that I was going over, I was like, okay, well, this is my big chance. I'm going to be going to Japan. I, I need to learn some Japanese, right? So I took a quarter of Japanese at the local community college there, and I was able to, you know, say, hey call my lawyer or where's the bathroom you know just your, your basic stuff that you need to, to live and uh, I got over there I was there for a few months and I got to speak English twice that whole time or I'm sorry Japanese twice that whole time because everybody wanted to practice their English on me and as hard as I tried to, to try to speak Japanese they wouldn't let me so um, <laughs> it's
2: like their accommodation. <laughs> there always are accommodating exactly. Japanese yeah.
0: And uh it, it was uh really interesting because obviously the society was a little more uh should we say regimented especially at the time and uh at the time I had long hair and you know probably looked like a drug dealer so as I would uh you know traipse around Kyoto at night uh I would actually have people that would follow me around and I don't know if they were there to protect me or look out for me or what the deal was, but uh, uh, that was odd. But as far as the workday goes, it was um, and I don't want to use the word strict because it wasn't that. It it was, again, just more regimented in how they worked and the way that they were uh, approaching the games was uh, not only from an artistic angle, but from a very precise angle of making sure that everything gets done as perfect as possible, and that was really, really interesting.
2: yeah, that's right. Yeah, perfectionist to the core.
0: So here's the worst part. Okay, so I'm working in Japan for a while, right? At the time, and you're going to shoot me for this, at the time, I was not a fan of sushi. Okay. So here, they're taking me out to all these awesome places, right? Uh, Probably the best restaurants around. Ever. Here I am, American... (laughs) Not trying sushi or even hinting that I like it. So, look, in hindsight, that's like the worst thing ever. I really wish I could have that one back to do again.
2: Five-star cuisine.
0: Yeah, and one of the weirdest trips that we took while I was over there is we went to um, – we took a trip to Tokyo, and this is – it's always weird when I'm going somewhere with a group there because they're I'm with a bunch of Japanese guys. They all have black hair, right? So, and normally yeah. wearing gray suits. So to me, from the back when I'm following around, everybody kind of looks the same, you know, from from the backside. So we're going through these subway tunnels where things are, you know, four, five, six, seven levels deep, like the weird dungeons that you see in the games. And I'm hoping that I'm following the right guy. You know? Oh, jeez. So that was neat. But when we were in Tokyo, we were there to see a recording session with Sadao Watanabe, uh, who did the Super Mario theme, uh, famous uh, jazz saxophone player. How nice. And it was kind of neat being in the studio, hearing him do that. I never got the CD, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Uh, that was one of the most memorable things. I got to go with the Super Mario team to go see uh, a CD cut. That was really, really fun.
1: Interesting. That's really cool that it was like a jazz you know, musician
0: that created the Mario thing. One of my favorite stories is uh, occasionally we would have, as I mentioned before, uh, characters that needed to be renamed because either it was something that just wouldn't translate well or that Americans couldn't say very well. So uh, when it came time to get to super Mario world, we saw this big green dinosaur named Yoshi, right? Is he a dinosaur? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I I believe it was, I think it came from marketing again, you know, always trying to make sure that things are most, uh, most efficient to get to market. And uh, the comment was made that Yoshi sounds too Japanese. So we sat around uh, for the better part of a week. I mean, we were doing other stuff too, of course, but uh, coming up with names. We came up with like probably 50 or 60 names for this green dinosaur. And um, the one that was at the top of the list was Hiro. And we were going to spell it H I R O. And kind of had a cool double meaning because obviously, hero is uh, what it means in the US, but hero is also uh, H I R O, is a very common Japanese name. Mm -hmm. So uh, then we submitted that and maybe some other names back to NCL over in Japan, and uh, they told us, nope, he's going to be called Yoshi, and that was that. (laughs) That (laughs) would have been pretty funny.
2: No hero. That's cool. But
0: he was almost named Hero, so hero, uh, the... I thought that was kind of interesting, and I'm really, really glad that that didn't stick.
1: Dropping the hero down the pit. Yeah, that kind of was so cheesy. Like, <laughs>
0: He can walk on spikes.
1: It's very useful, for sure. Mario World is just one of those games that uh, both Kyle and I can go through and like just play like the back of our hand and go through the special worlds and do everything flawlessly it's so fun
0: can you name all the special worlds
1: tubular rad gnarly all those ones you mean
0: cool (laughs)
1: um i i don't know all of them for sure like i know at least four (laughs) like there's there's eight total correct i believe so yeah the one that used to always get us back in the day was the 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 p power-up level it's the hardest level in the game which is the third level, I want to say. I want to say it's tubular. Um, the, the irony is now, as long as I'm not like intoxicated, I can do it first time.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, once you know it, you know it But when you're starting it. You know, one mistake and you're done.
0: Oh, yeah. And it was kind of neat watching the game testers uh, work on sections like that. Because we had a slew of... I may be off on this number 20, 25 game testers at Nintendo of America that would uh, play as much of every game that they could on all of the different chipsets that were available for a particular system just to make sure that you know the program was going to work there. And we had some excellent, excellent, excellent players. Uh, but I, I tell you, I don't really envy their job because it's fun for the first hour, but when you're going through that world you were talking about for the eighty seventh time, I'm sure it gets a little old.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it takes the passion right there. Like you gotta be
1: hardcore. Yeah, I mean yeah. it goes from it's it's one thing to like and they were beta test a homebrew game like from like nowadays, but it's another thing to be that's your job from Nintendo and you have to find the bugs. If you miss something and gets to market, that's like your job performance. That's a big deal. That's brutal too.
0: Yeah, there were no patches then either. No, I mean,
1: you would see um, sometimes revisions come out, and that's where you'll see, like, different ROM dumps where it's, like, 1.0, 1.1, 1.2. But um, Nintendo wouldn't announce that, and it wouldn't be known. Um, there's actually one game where, like, there's different music in two different versions of the game on the Super Nintendo, like on two different levels. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Or it can become something legendary like the Minus World.
1: Yeah, that's good old
2: Minus World. Swimming around. Good times.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, and, and the thing was, is that, like, bugs and exploits like that were like a badge of honor when you could find those. Because they were so few and far between, but then it was finite, too, because then you could talk to your friends on the playground and be like, hey, I found this Minus World. And it became a lore because they couldn't replicate it.
2: Yeah, someone found, one, like, a few months ago uh, like an infinite life trick in super mario brothers i mean people are still finding them it's, it's little glitches you fall through the floor you know
1: it's just cool it, like never ends i mean that's the best part of retro gaming
0: when i was a uh, gameplay counselor we'd have kids calling us all the time trying to explain these that something weird that happened in their game and you know we couldn't do it because these kids were playing the game sixteen hours a day and we were only playing them eight hours a day but it was uh we'd get calls from regulars that would call over and over and uh they'd let us know if they found something that's for sure
2: <laughs> so was it really like laid back um just describe the job atmosphere I've always wanted to know like what it's like just chilling or
0: wow, that's a hard one to answer i I think it's like any tech company, normally, at least from different ones that I've been involved with or that I've seen, when you start off, things are a lot more relaxed. Uh, Not that you don't want to be successful, but it's a lot more fun at the start. As you grow, you need to be able to uh, keep your success going. And to do that, you need to make sure that the numbers are there and and everything uh, is I don't even know how to put it. Uh, the, everything is more structured, I guess, as you go. So I wouldn't say that it that it got less fun, but it definitely got more structured as time went on.
1: Yeah, you had to keep being proficient in your efficiency ratings and keeping everybody happy and... Stacks on top
2: of itself. Yeah, the more you do, the more you're expected to do well.
1: So, So another thing we talked about at Replay... Um, Metal Jesus on his channel found a counselor's binder um, that he, he came across. And I think you said that you either still have one or one of your buddies still has one or something to that effect. And, like, were those all the same? I know somebody said, like, online that, like, certain counselors would, like, write up and hand-draw maps, and sometimes those would be photocopied and shared, other times they wouldn't. Like, what's your story behind the the, the binders?
0: Yeah, the gameplay counselors kind of went through a few different phases. Uh, when I got there, uh, I'd say I was sort of in the second phase. The first phase was when there were, and I'm off on this number, but there were, like, 25 or 30 games, right? So it was pretty easy to know all of them. So the first wave of gameplay counselors or the you know the, the legendary guys, uh, they knew all those by heart. Uh, then in the second wave, it started to get to where there were too many games to specialize in all of them. You know, we had people that were great in some, but I knew, hey, if I ever got a call about Athena, which I didn't know anything about, I, I, I transferred it to Rich because he was an Athena expert. And if I got a call on Deadly Towers that I really maybe uh, didn't have the patience to work through or the <laughs> skill set to do, uh, that would go to somebody else as well.
2: It was a hard one.
0: Yeah, so uh, at that at that point is when the mapping and the copying started. It was uh, it was really fun because people would share their work. Uh, you know, somebody would go through and map out all the dungeons in whatever game copy them and give them to everybody to put in their binder. Uh, And it's funny, when I started as a gameplay counselor, the training was maybe two to four weekends. I think you had to beat Metroid and maybe play something else. I don't even remember what it was. But uh, after that, it was regimented. It became a, uh, for gameplay counselor training, you had to, I think it was a three to four month process, and you had to get through all of the big titles so you would know Mario and Zelda, all the big ones, you'd have to know them forwards and backwards because that's where 95% of the calls were. Um, Makes sense. And then after I had moved out of the gameplay area, you may have heard of Elmo. Have you guys heard of Elmo?
2: Like Sesame Street?
0: No, not that Elmo. (laughs) Uh,
2: That's the only Elmo I've uh, heard of.
0: (laughs) Uh, it was the name for the electronic manuals that were online at Nintendo. So they took those binders and converted them into a database uh, put together by people way smarter than I could ever hope to be. But it was the tool that that they could use. And you could actually answer most questions, even on a game that maybe you hadn't ever played. So that was... Uh, uh, the amount of data that was in there and the way it was organized was absolutely incredible. It's awesome that it got digital. And I remember like many years
1: later and probably a few years back now, maybe seven or eight years back now, I ordered on Nintendo's website, um, Zelda and Zelda two manuals. Cause they were selling them still it ended up being like literally those digital scans printed out on pieces of paper from Nintendo. <laughs> like really it was like hilarious and that's the <laughs>
2: photocopied and shit
1: yeah no, that's what it was it was photocopy manuals how much did you pay? with freaking folds on it and everything <laughs> it wasn't even like pristine manuals it wasn't like I could it's even amazing. like it was terrible like I think I have them in a box somewhere because it's just so bad um I, I probably paid five to ten bucks a manual nice fucking scam artist n- Nintendo <laughs> Ouch. My final question would be, what, when you were in the localization or even the, the playtesting, were there any games that you played that never came out, that were unreleased, that they were planning on releasing?
0: I'm sure that there were a lot. Normally, we'd catch a game uh, at the, near the start of its development cycle, and the ones that just didn't ring a bell with us wouldn't continue in development. Uh, So I wish I could come up with a specific one. I'm thinking there's got to be something that didn't make it. Because,
1: I mean, I know in Japan there were literally about 1,500-ish Famicom games released, um, maybe even more. And, you know, so half of those games never came out here, but a lot of them came over and were tested by people.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of those were made uh, by a marketing decision. If they didn't do well over there, pretty sure it wasn't going to do well over here. Plus, there was that thing that I was talking about with Final Fantasy where they just felt like the market wasn't ready for it. Maybe the game was too complex um, simply because we didn't have the history of playing through those types of games. Yeah, it's
1: going to be an interesting aspect with my... um my next book I'm working on, which is oddities and the Famicom section. And Kyle and I were talking about, it's like, it's getting insane. It's going to be about 400 games that you can play without understanding Japanese that are available only on the Famicom. And it's really cool dichotomy. And it's, it's one of those things that I'm interested in just to even be able to look up and play, let alone collect. But, um, but yeah, like there there had to be nice. so many little cool little aspects of games. Like I know a lot of people talk about like Mother Three Earthbound, the classic Sin City, but like you never know like what you may come across in your area that somebody else in a different area came across too.
0: That's true. Very true.
2: Can you talk about your experience with the wizard just a little bit? Yes.
0: <laughs> oh. Oh, that silly old movie? Yeah. Um well, I wish I could say that it was glamorous. Uh, the way that the wizard came about is uh, I think it's fairly obvious that it was a marketing tool for Super Mario Brothers 3, right? Yeah. So the so the script came around and um We made some alterations to it from a game player's perspective. So, you think it was cheesy the way that it got released. You should have seen it before we got to it. (laughs) Uh, The movie, though, was interesting. I never got to meet Fred Savage or Bull Bridges or whoever else was in it. Uh, My whole... experience with the movie was going through parts of the script and making suggestions. Some were taken, some weren't. Uh, But the other thing that I did is I actually did probably 98% of the game playing in that movie. So anytime that you see something on a screen moving, that's me playing. How that occurred, you would think this would be glamorous, but uh, I flew down to LA and went to uh, one of the, uh, producers or directors' houses and uh, basically sat in his living room and played through a bunch of games while he hooked it up to his uh, Beta SP machine, and uh, that was as, as crazy as it got. But it was really, really fun to watch the movie because uh, w- when, you, when you see gameplay happening, and it's you, it's your moves, it's kind of like hearing yourself on the radio where it, it just... It sounds really weird, but you're kind of intrigued by it. Same thing there. It's like, hey, that's that guy's jumping like I do. Oh wait, that's me.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: that's what I would do. Yeah, because I record myself a lot. It's it's tripped up for sure. Did you guys all feel the Mario Three magic? Like as all this was going on, like was it? Could you just feel it, like building? I
0: could not get enough of Super Mario Brothers Three. That was. Uh, that was just one of those games that I would play over and over and over. And it wasn't for me, it was the way that it felt. It just, Mario felt perfect in that game. And it was really fun to go back to. And when you could just pull off moves that, uh, I would say that the best play control is when you don't realize that there's play control. It just goes straight from your brain to the character on the screen. And that game, maybe more than any other game for me ever, uh, had that perfectly.
2: I think you're right. I think I can't say anything else that's ever bested that. Mario World, uh, that's the only other one I can think of.
0: And for me, Mario World was weird because I had to get used to the new controller.
2: Oh, yeah. That's Uh that's a good point. Were a lot of people in the same boat where they had trouble adjusting
0: Oh, nobody would admit that they had trouble adjusting, but yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Well, it's like with the NES, you can get that perfect thumb position where you can hit both of the buttons just the right way, and you can rock back and forth between them. Uh, you had to totally learn that again for for the Super NES. Not to mention that we started off with the Japanese controller, which was a little bit different. Hmm.
2: Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So you almost got like a prototype or like an early version, like a Super Famicom style.
0: Uh, we were doing it on the Super Famicom because the Super NES didn't exist yet. Yeah. Cool. Makes sense.
1: So yeah, my iPad is on its last leg. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're I think we're good
2: for a sign off. You know. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I hope I gave you some good stuff. Yeah.
1: Thanks for uh, taking the time to come on. Yeah.
0: Alright. And hey, we'll have to do it again sometime. Now that I can do it, I'm sure I can come up with other interesting stuff if you guys are game.
2: Oh, always, man. Hell yeah.
0: Cool deal. And hey, sometime I'll have to hook you guys up with somebody who is actually a good player. That uh, could make for some more interesting stuff.
2: Stories were great. You know, That's, that's really what it's all about. Stories are the best. So, just thanks so much for sharing it all with us, you know?
0: Alright. Talk to you guys later. It was fun.
2: You take it easy. Thanks so much.
0: You too. See ya.
2: (laughs) Bye. Alright, see ya thank you for
1: listening to vgbs we appreciate everybody taking the time to get through this whole uh arduous podcast we love it thank you thank you thank you if you want to correspond with us you can email us at vgbspodcast at gmail.com but we also have a phone number it is two two six four vgbs you can leave us a voicemail shoot us a text message um whatever you want to do correspond also comment on us us a message on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus. We love hearing what people um think about the podcast. All right, see you later.
0: Woo. Later.